going to read the first 29 verses of Romans chapter 9. We're entering into a new section of Romans. If you're looking uh, to, to an outline of the book of Romans, uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11 form uh, one of the sections of it. And we're going to be looking at these uh, three, three chapters uh, over the next month or so and uh, ask that the Lord would give us great wisdom. They're not the easiest chapters uh, in the Bible uh, and not the easiest ones in Romans. But uh, they're very rich and are very encouraging. So now let us turn our attention to God's word. Where Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, a desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, will be, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, 
only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. When we come to worship, of course we come uh, recognizing that we're not just uh, spectators here in church. We're coming to do something. We're coming to, to, to sing to the Lord, to pray to the Lord. Uh, we are in his presence and we want to bring glory and honor to him. Now one part of the worship service is that we listen to God's word and we hear it preached and we uh, come to do that in a spirit of worship, or we should come to do that in a spirit of, of worship. We, we are recognizing that God is a, a great God. Uh, he is the God that we worship, and we want to praise and, and sing about how great he is and, and rehearse all of his characteristics, or at least some of his characteristics. We can't rehearse them all in, in every worship service, but, but we come in his, to his presence to bring him glory and honor and, and to show that we love him. And one of the ways that we do that is by listening to his word. We have things we want to say to God, but now it's time for us to hear what God has to say to us. When we come to a difficult passage like Romans 9, it's important that we come to it with the right attitude. Because it's going to say some things, it does say some things that we don't want to hear, that we don't like very much. Indeed, I used to not even read this passage because I didn't care for it at all. And then I wrestled with it one day and I finally had to come to the place where this, this is God's word and I need to submit to it. And when I came with that worshipful, humble attitude, God opened my eyes. And I pray that he will do so for you as well as you come humbly to what is being said here because we believe this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. It is the truth, and we want God to speak to us and help us to understand it in a deeper way. So today we're beginning this new section of Romans here in chapter 9, and it goes through chapter 11. Now in these three chapters, Paul discusses God's design for the Jews, the people of Israel, and for Gentiles, and how it all fits together. Now if you were to jump from the end of chapter 8 that we looked at last week, and then you, you move skipped 9, 10, and 11, and went right into chapter 12, it would be a seamless transition. If you read the last few verses of chapter 8 and then jump to chapter 12, verse 1, it makes logical, perfect sense. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 can seem like an interruption to the flow and argument of the letter. And it has led some commentators to regard Romans 9 through 11 as no more than a parenthesis, as an excursus, or an appendix, if you will. And I mean, I think they mean appendix like the part of your body, that it's there, it's not really necessary, and if you cut it out, nobody misses it. Some people have that attitude about Romans 9, 10, and 11. But it is God's Word. And as we examine these chapters in the coming month or so, we will see that they are an integral and essential part of the book and the argument of Romans. So why does Paul, if we think about what's being said here, why does Paul move from saying, right there at the end of chapter 8, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two, you know that thought, nothing can separate us from God. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from his love in Christ. Two, I am so concerned about the salvation of my Jewish kinsmen that I would be willing to be accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake if that were possible. It seems like a bit of a, a jump, doesn't it? Something that comes right out of the blue. But as we look at the book of, as a whole, I think we can see how it all fits together and, and what Paul's driving at. If you go back to, to chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, which practically every commentator, every Bible scholar says those two verses are the theme of Romans. They are summed up, the theme of Romans, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel... That's what Romans is all about, the gospel. And it is first for the Jew and then for the Greek. And it came first to the Jews and it came secondly to the Gentiles. See that played out in the book of Acts. Now the question is, if the salvation provided by God through Jesus Christ is for the Jew first and also to the Gentile, and if the promises of God are so secure, like we read about in chapter 8, that nothing in all creation can separate us from his love, then why are there, why were there in those days, and why are there even today, so few of those who are Jews racially who believe in Jesus Christ? Why are there so few? God made all kinds of promises to them. And yet we don't see that many people turning to the Lord, many Jews turning to the Lord. Paul reminds us in verse 4, to them belong the adoption. That is, that Israel is called, throughout the Old Testament, God's son. Israel, the nation of Israel, God's son in the Old Testament. The, sh the, the glory, the Shekinah glory. God manifests his glorious presence to them, particularly in the tabernacle, in the temple. The covenants, God made oaths to those people through, through Abraham and Moses and David. The law was given through Moses. The worship the, that was prescribed by God was given exclusively to the Jews, not to other nations. Other nations didn't have that privilege of having God write down for them his will. And the promises spoken through the prophets... Patriarchs, people to whom God spoke, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samuel, David, etc. And ultimately from their race is the Christ. Jesus was Jewish. They had all these privileges, all these things that should have given them a leg up in understanding that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation provided by God. They should have embraced the gospel fully and completely because they had all this background that points clearly to Christ. God did all this for them and through them to the world, but so many do not believe. 
this wonderful promise that God makes, the, the wonderful gospel that, that, is, that, that God has given us and, and that salvation that is so secure that nothing can separate us from the love of God, if so many of them don't believe, can God's calling and purpose be rejected? Well, Romans 8 makes it clear that it cannot be rejected. But so many Jews don't believe. And if God promised to Israel that they would be his people, yet the majority don't believe in Christ, does that mean God's promise or power or mercy is failing? Does that mean that God's promise, power, and mercy can fail you and me if it failed them? Can and does God keep his word, fulfill his promises? That's the question. That's the concern that Paul is after. And he raises it in verse 6. Because that's what he says. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And here's why. He's going to go on to explain. God's word has not failed. God's promises are secure. God's purposes have not been thwarted by the unbelief of some. And look at the second part of chapter, uh, verse 6. For not all, this is why, here's his explanation. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul says here, just because someone is physically descended from Abraham, it doesn't mean that they belong to the true Israel, and the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, etc. And he gives two examples. First, Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham's children. But only to Isaac did the promise of salvation come. It was only to Isaac and through Isaac. And then secondly, also, Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. But the promise of salvation was only to Jacob, not to Esau. So it's not everybody physically descended from Abraham that is saved, that is that are part of God's family, that are the true Israel, but only some. Paul reiterates this to the Galatians in chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So it doesn't depend on physical descent at all. Some of those people who are physically descended from Abraham are, are, are part of God's kingdom. And, then, and now, even so, some of the Gentiles have been grafted in, as we will see in chapter 11. In verse 11, Paul explains why, in reference to Jacob and Esau, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The difference between one person and another, between a Jacob and an Esau, an Isaac and an Ishmael, what Paul's saying is here is God's choice, election. Election means the act of choice whereby God picks an individual or group out of a larger company for a purpose or destiny 
of his own appointment. God is sovereign, we believe. He has foreordained everything that comes to pass. He plans everything. Nothing is outside of his will. These verses are explaining that God chose Jacob and not Esau. And he chose him before Esau and Jacob were born. Before they did anything. It had nothing to do with their good or bad works. We've already been introduced to this idea in chapter 8. Whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God didn't foresee it, he foreknew it. There's a difference between foreseeing and foreknowing. Some people think, well, God looked forward into history. He saw that Esau was going to be a bad person, and so he chose Jacob instead of Esau based on his foresight. But foreknowledge is not foresight. It says foreknew, and what foreknowledge means is that God knew intimately beforehand. That word know is the same word that you might use for Adam knew Eve and had a son. Intimate knowledge. God knows his people intimately. He's chosen them before even time began. In these verses, what what Paul's explaining here in verse 11, that before they did anything, good or bad, before they were even born, God made a choice. He chose Jacob and not Esau. And Rebekah was informed of God's choice of Jacob before they were born, before the boys were born. She was told the older will serve the younger. God informed her of his purpose according to his choice. He had made a choice, and he's telling her beforehand because that would not be the way it normally works. The older wouldn't serve the younger. The younger would serve the older. And so she's, God's letting Rebecca know this because God has chosen to do something different than what would be normally uh, culturally acceptable. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. God did not choose Jacob on the basis of anything in Jacob or Esau's life, but to achieve the fulfillment of God's purpose of election. God chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. God chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. Now, you're probably sitting there going, well, that's not fair. That's what Paul anticipates and what he answers in the next verses. That's not fair. Esau's rejected even though he hadn't done anything good or bad. He wasn't even born yet, and he was rejected. How can that be fair? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's another way of saying, is God unfair? And his answer is emphatic, by no means. It's not unfair at all. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We are completely at God's mercy. It's not our will, it's not our exertions, it's not our deeds, it's not anything in us. It's completely dependent upon God's mercy, our salvation is. When we say that's not fair to God, It's based on an underlying belief in in salvation by works instead of by grace. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
What would be fair in the case of Jacob and Esau? What, what would we think would be fair? Would it be fair to just uh, let them be born and, and for God to put his hands back and say, we'll just see you know, what Esau and Jacob do on their own. What choice would they make on their own without any intervention on my part? Well, we know. I, I know exactly what choice they would make. They would never choose God. Human beings don't have it in them to choose God. We will always reject God. That's part of being sinners. That's part of the fall. We want to be our own gods. We push God away. So if God were fair in the sense that we would want him to be fair, we would all be lost. That's what he means by verse 29. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If God had not intervened, we, every one of us, would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would just be tumbling headlong into our sins. God had to intervene in your life at some point in order for you to be saved. It doesn't depend on you. It completely is dependent upon him intervening in your life. Now, we're not saying we're robots and we're pre-programmed a certain way. I'm just saying that naturally, normally, we, we would not pursue God at all. God must intervene. You think about, well, just think about if you're a believer today, why are you a believer and your neighbor is not? Why are you a believer and your neighbor is not? Well, you might say, well, I've repented of my sins and turned to Christ. Yes, great. Why did you repent of your sins and turn to Christ? Well, I, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I humbled myself and, and, and prayed. Right. Why did you humble yourself? Why did you recognize that you're a sinner? Well, I, I heard the gospel and you know, went to church. And Why did you hear the gospel and go to church? Why? We could keep going down this trail. And you either come to one of two places. You either come to a place where you recognize that at some point God did something to you. Or you will come to the conclusion that you're just a little bit smarter and a little bit better than everybody else that's lost. You'll say, well, I chose because I'm smart and I was smart enough to hear the gospel and respond to it. Or... Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm just a, a little more righteous than everybody else, and so I turn to God. The only other option is you were lost, and God intervened, and here's how he actually does it. He chose you before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. And at some point in your life, God sent the Holy Spirit to wake you up. He sent the Holy Spirit to turn the lights on in your darkness. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells you, but God intervened with his grace. You know, pulled out the paddles, gave you the electric shock spiritually so that you could wake up and turn to him in faith and repentance. Now, I'm not going to belabor the, belabor the point uh, on that. There's a lot we could say. I'm sure you have lots of objections. 
One book that I would recommend to you if you, if you want to wrestle with this, it's very simple. Uh, well, simple as this topic of predestination and foreknowledge and election can be, but R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God, most helpful book, and it's not very long, and he's the best at explaining difficult things very simply. The, the, point, of this, the point of all this, where I want us to end up, is not to... Not to doubt our salvation, not to wonder, well, am I one of the chosen and when am, I, when am I not? If I'm not, I wonder where I am. It's not that. And it's not to become proud, say, well, I am one of the chosen and you're not. That's not good. I like what the confession of faith says. It says, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. No doubt, because it is a difficult one. But it needs to be handled with special prudence and care that men and women, attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience to it, may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. Now, that's some big words from the 1600s. What does he say? He's saying we need to be careful with this doctrine. We need to be careful of this doctrine in a way that would, you know, that we come to God's word, as I said at the beginning, humbly, hearing what the Lord says to us and yielding obedience to it, you know, submitting to what God has said here. And as we do so, not just in Romans 9, but as we do so in all of the Bible, as we trust in what he's telling us about the gospel, what he's, how he's telling us to live our lives, all the things that he instructs us on in, in his word, as we, as we submit to those things, we will, and as we cry out to the Lord for mercy, as it tells us to in his word, we can be assured of our eternal election. As we see the fruits of that, the, our eternal vocation, which means our, our, our effect, effectual vocation, it means our effectual calling, our, the fact that God has called us to himself. As we respond to God's call, the call that goes out to everybody, whether you're chosen or not, we don't know, no one knows who's chosen or not, but we are all called to respond. As you respond and submit to God's word, uh, as you place yourself at the mercy of God, you can be assured that you are one of those uh, who are of the elect. And as you do that, as you continuously submit to God's word, it says, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration. A lot of people don't say that about the doctrine of predestination, that it's a source of praise and admiration of God and of humility diligence and abundant consolation, comfort to all who sincerely obey the gospel. We praise God for his great mercy. I mean, that's where we need to be today, rejoicing that God has seen fit to save anybody at all. I mean, if he left us to our own devices, none of us would be believers. But he has called us to himself, and he has given us the spirit that we might respond to him. And we need to do so and praise God for it and revere him because it's all in his hands. 
and admire Him for His mercy and love towards us and be humbled by it. It's not anything that we've... We're not any better than anybody else because it doesn't depend upon our cleverness or our righteousness. It doesn't depend on our works. Like he says, it's not the one who, uh, who wills. It's not depend on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's completely dependent upon Him. So we should be humbled. You know... Presbyterians ought to be the most humble people in the world because this is our doctrine. <laughs> but <laughs> it's usually the opposite. It's true. But this, this doctrine should truly humble us because we're no better than anyone else. It should give us diligence. As Peter told the, to, to the people to whom he was writing in 2 Peter 1, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm it. Show that it's true that you have been called. Show that it's true that you are one of the elect. Practice these qualities and you will never fall. So it should be an opportunity for us to be more diligent to show that we are truly his people. And it should give us great comfort. Our salvation does not depend upon us. It depends on God who has mercy. Our lives are completely in his hands. Has God's word failed? Absolutely not, nor will it ever fail. If we trust in him, he, he will never fail us. And our lives are in his hands. And that's a great comfort to us. And I pray that it's a comfort for you today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help us to find uh, humility, uh, diligence, comfort in your word today. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.